I went to a marvelous party. Christopher, this is only going to work if we speak one at a time. Fine, you first, Eric. From the Sunset Strip in beautiful West Hollywood, California, it's The Dinner Party Show, the Internet's first live comedy variety show, with your hosts, New York Times best-selling authors, Christopher Rice. Actually, there's a new study that confirms every other child you see on the street is a ghost. <laughs> and Eric Shaw Quinn. I don't want to talk too much, but... Okay, we're going no, to no. take up a collection for the stained glass window. Now we want the dirt. Featuring reports from their largely unqualified staff of special correspondents. Sex is like Christmas. It's the not knowing what you're going to get that makes it exciting. New York is a giant trash island infested by has-been theater queens. If we're really serious about cutting federal spending, the biggest waste of public funds I can think of is Congress. Two snaps for Jesus! The Dinner Party Show. Everyone gets served. Tonight's live cast is streaming to you live and for free through the dinnerpartyshow.com and our free mobile app. And now, direct from the kitchen by way of the Get out of my office. It's your hosts, Christopher and Eric. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And welcome to the Dinner Party Show. And on tonight's Dinner Party Show, we will be joined by Steve Barry, the number one internationally best-selling and New York Times best-selling author of, I believe it's Nine Cotton Malone Adventures. That's actually the name of his hero, Cotton Malone. And your cat. My cat is named Cotton. Prince Cotton Murphy III is actually the full name of my cat. So your cat, d does he have um, international adventures? He does not own a bookshop in Copenhagen, and he does not secretly work for the Justice Department, as Cotton Malone does. So the resemblance kind of ends there. It does. It does end I see. there. Just it the name thing. Are they related at all? They're not related. You know, instead of talking about my cat, who we should be talking about is Abraham Lincoln, because that is actually the subject of Steve Barry's new thriller, The Lincoln Myth, which he will be here to discuss. Well, I'm interested to hear about that. I love historical um, novels. so. And you love history as well. so Which is which goes well with historical novels. It does. Yeah. I hear yeah, that really the historical crazy. novels have a lot of history in them. Anyway, so... And we'll be making history tonight with uh, our first winner of our Quattro de Mayo. Yeah. We'll be announcing our first winner. Um, we had the big drawing. There was a tie, I understand. Yeah, there was a tie. So we'll have a live drawing here on the air for... Uh, for the the winner, why are you? Uh, uh, well, I just want to I want to preface that if you're just listening to our show for the first time because my mother bullied you into doing it on Facebook, thank uh, you. We want to tell you what the Quattro de Mayo thing was. It was a we we invited people to call our party line three two three Pez TDPS and leave their most embarrassing drunken confession, which you're always welcome to do. Always. We're always glad to hear your most embarrassing drunken confessions. 
just call the hotline. And then we had the people, you, our party people. The party line. Why are we calling it the hotline? Uh, you the called party it the hotline. Line. I, think I called it the party line. Well, I'm sorry. My mistake. You are throwing us off script, Eric Chuckwin. Anyway, we had the people vote. You, our party people, voted on the winner of the most embarrassing, mortifying, horrifying, drunken confession. And we did have a tie, and we will be drawing the winner in our next segment. There was a lot of mortifying going on up in here. Excellent. Well, we'll be back in just a minute here on The Dinner Party Show. You're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Enjoy the hors d'oeuvres, but don't fill up. There's plenty more to come. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And it is time for the drawing, the much-talked-about contest winner reveal. Right, it's all about history tonight. We've Absolutely. got Steve Barry, historical novelist, coming on a little later. But first, we're going to make history of our own by selecting our first annual Quattro de Mayo Drunken, Drunken confession. confession winner. Absolutely. We invited our listeners, our party people, to call into the party line 323-PEZ-TDPS. And if you've forgotten the number, which would be impossible because we say it constantly. Yeah, call now. And we uh, put the uh, contestants up on a ballot on our Facebook page, and we invited our party people to vote, and we had a tie. And I have shuffled the two. And- oh, no. Oh, no, we had a, we had an incident with the drawing. I'm so glad we're not video streaming this. Eric Shaw Quinn is going to pick our winner. I'm calling standards and practices. Right. Okay. We have drawn the winner. Okay. He is unfolding the post-it And note. I'm wearing my glasses, fortunately. Thank God. And the winner is The Naked Facts of Life. Oh, I... Okay, it's Buffy again. I have one other story for you guys. I promised I wouldn't tell it, but screw it. It's for a contest. Anyhow, um, so everybody had been drinking, and we were all feeling pretty damn good. Um, but, you know, the night was coming to an end. So the boys went up off to bed, and uh, Stu and I went up off to bed. All of a sudden, I lost Stu. I'm like, where where did where, go? And uh, Hear him talking to the boys. I go in there. He's stark naked, giving the boys the love talk. Could you imagine how horrified my boys were when their dad is standing there in all his glory telling them about love? Oh, holy hell. I grabbed all the stew, put him to bed, and I'm still apologizing to the boys many years later. Anyhow, have fun, guys. <laughs> Bye. Yeah, that's pretty horrifying. Oh my God! Yeah, they all were, but yeah, that's the thought of having your the father. facts of life naked. Yeah, at, naked and drunk. And drunk. Yeah, yeah that, absolutely. That's pretty. Yeah, like that'll that'll keep therapists in uh, <laughs> in vacation homes for a while to come. That it was tied with. It was tied with stepfather's day, as we called it, which was a a, a young man went out to drink with a a man he was interested in, and they went back to the man's house, and he somehow wound up. Or woke up in bed with the man's stepfather. Also kind of horrifying. So weird. But also, uh, I think, available currently on uh, Amazon's erotic fiction. Absolutely. In 43 different forms. 43 different parts, too, for 99 (laughs) cents each. (laughs) 
Uh, yeah, so I'll tell you, I, we had a little resistance from people when we first announced the contest because we realized that not everybody was comfortable calling into an internet radio show and describing their embarrassing behavior. But I so bet, <laughs> I bet if we made it, which is basically what this winner is, if we made it describing somebody else's drunken behavior, wow. we would be flooded with calls at our Dirty secrets. A dirty secrets call in. Yeah, that would be absolutely. great. So we'll have to, we'll have to uh, speak to our production team about developing a Dirty Secrets one. Right. Um, so there's not much else to talk about uh, well, uh, in the world of what? Well, you know, I understand that um, you uh, went to uh, the Stoker Awards in Portland, mm-hmm. Oregon last week. How I was did. that? You were nominated. I your, was. I was. Your wonderful n- book, uh-huh. your wonderful terrifying snake book. Yes, The Heavens Rise, the Heavens Rise which I wrote to alienate my best friend, Eric Shaw Quinn. It kind of worked. Because he likes, you know, tea cozies and whatever. He doesn't and like... I am not fond of snakes. Yeah, you know, the, the thing that's terrible is that the snake scene that you're referring to in the draft you read, it came early on in the novel, and then I moved it later in the book. And so you're basically spoiling my book whenever you call it the snake book. Actually, it's not true. What I just said is not true at all. It has almost nothing to do with the book at all. Yeah. It just was that scene was so terrifying. You can't write me. a scary book in Louisiana without snakes in it. Anyway, so I didn't win. Stephen King won. You can't go to the A&P in Louisiana <laughs> without there being snakes involved. <laughs> That's very true. There's, very, there's actually an A&P for snakes. Yeah, we're from Louisiana, so I feel perfectly qualified to Absolutely. say that. Absolutely. We, so we can trash Louisiana as much as we want. So you didn't? No, So it wasn't selected um, that... Uh, uh, that upstart, that New England upstart. The dark horse candidate, yeah. as our friend Michael Steve, Rowe called him. Stephen yes. King, actually. Yes, Stephen King. Bested you in that particular, but pretty good company to be nominated. I will Mr. say, Rose. Stephen King, uh, Joe Hill, also who happens to be Stephen King's son, and also a very talented writer. I didn't read the book Joe was nominated for this year, but I did read his previous book, Horns, which I quite enjoyed. And uh, F. Paul Wilson, who wrote a novel called The Keep in the, in the early 80s, I believe, that was very popular. He was nominated. So it was a very esteemed list. And also Lisa Morton was nominated for a novel called Malediction. So I was in very good company and I was very uh, happy to have lost. And then I just sort of moved on and, and, went I and hung out with people. Many and... people considered that they were the big winners um, well, after the, the Stokers Award. What you're talking about. Um, well, just, there was yeah. apparently. We're not sure if this is going to wind up on the drunken confessions party line. <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, I only drink caffeine these days. Yeah, but well, I will say that you can do just as much stuff you regret on too much caffeine as you can on too much and alcohol. And apparently, you were really um, all jumped up on caffeine uh, in I don't know Portland. What you're talking about. Um, I there was a. a, a a picture posted that I think a, a number of people uh, saw and maybe commented on your mother for Happy Mother's Day. Yeah, my phone was hacked by Michael Sam, who has a crush on me, obviously, <laughs> and was looking to distract from his draft. Pick. There'll be cake on your face and by sundown. I, he could put cake on my face anytime. No, he's married, and I'm very happy for them. I think they make a lovely couple, and uh, I think we should talk about them really, and not. I think first oh, okay. we should completely address the Okay, whole... let me okay, let me address this. Let me address this. I don't I take exception <laughs> to the fact that it's described or was being described as a as a nude selfie. I was nude when I took it, but it does not show me nude. <laughs> 
it stops in just the right place. Um, I will concede that that I did make the mistake of of reading some of the blog comments, and it's interesting to know that I am you know personally responsible for the destruction of culture because I took a picture of myself getting out of the shower, and uh, apparently uh, my mom is very happy who knew that culture I'd, was that fragile. Who knew culture couldn't shower? I think it's great. I'd like to thank my friend Brett Savory for showing solidarity with me by taking a picture of himself with no shirt on, although he didn't include his face. Um, <laughs> I, I appreciate people standing by There's me during this. There's a technique you might want to consider. It's difficult time. Somebody said if you cut your face out of it, it would make a, a great grinder photo. What's grinder? Oh yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> that's yeah. Try that. So I uh, well, I have to say I'm a little overwhelmed and I guess flattered by the attention that it received. While I expected to make a big impact with my social media followers, I didn't expect it to end up on quite so many websites. But you're not at all disappointed. Oh, I'm going to act disappointed, but you know. Yeah. It's just terrible. It's I don't just know terrible. what everybody is so worked up about. Well, I think it also makes a perfect sort of, aren't you off to yet another The Romantic Times. Yes. Right? As a part of the launch of your new work. Yes, absolutely. I'm attending the Romantic Times Book Lovers Convention, and I I understand that that is a conference that is very much about uh, men. In various states of undress and the women who enjoy seeing them that way. So I thought, why not? Why not? I thought, on the one hand, I, I said to my my loyal Facebook followers out there in the dark, I said, if I lose this award, I'm going to need some kind of validation. And I'm 36 years old and I don't think I look half bad and I spend a lot of time at the gym. I, I will take exception to the people who called it a cheap publicity ploy. I, I will send you the bill for my training sessions. They are not cheap, good sirs. They are not cheap at all. So it may have um, been a publicity ploy, but it was not a cheap one. It'll not cheap. And the next one will probably require surgery, which I don't imagine will be cheap either. <laughs> so, so uh, yes, I was intrigued. There was some controversy when Out.com posted it because they cropped it. And they said, we need to crop this to make it safe for work. And there were some people who said that it absolutely did not need to be cropped to be safe for work. So I did not keep my promise to you. I read many of those comments, many of which I should not have read. I, all uh, of which. All of should, which. You should not have read. Yeah, I, I think that, yeah, it's one thing when you say, so who's your favorite character from Dickens on your <laughs> Facebook page? And it's another entirely when you post a naked picture of yourself and yeah. and then look for, go trolling for who's going to say nice things about it. I think those are two very different. It's very, of, it's a very different also, thing. Also, I think it's all dependent on where you point the camera. Like if you're naked, but you take a picture of a landscape, mm-hmm. could be a naked landscape, right. but not quite the same. That's sort very of. true. But, but but naked selfie implies that oneself yeah. is in the image naked, and and I and I was naked, but it does not show me all the way down, all the way. That will be when I lose an Oscar. <laughs> Let us not rush into any rash promises <laughs> well, on sa- the air. I did say that, and somebody said, technically, you're losing Oscars every year because you've never been nominated for one. So, I don't know. I don't know. It's been a very interesting experience. It's been a very interesting experience, and I'm glad the rest of our show is not devoted to talking about it. No, the rest of our show is going to be devoted to talking to fascinating historical novelist Steve Barry. Um, he's here to talk about his book that's coming out just this week. I just think. this week. The Lincoln Myth, it's called. The latest adventure featuring his hero, Cotton Malone, and a very eye-opening series of revelations about President Abraham Lincoln, which he will detail and for us. And his legacy. Yeah, it really. Yes. It's quite a, yeah. So uh, we're very interested to have him. Uh, he'll be joining us next. Absolutely. For 50 years, Oliver Monroe has brought you some of the finest works of American literature. 
Our authors include world leaders and multiple Pulitzer and Nobel Prize winners. Now, in recognition of the changing landscape of publishing, Oliver and Rowe has selected the very best works of these independent authors who have made a distinguished and profitable name for themselves in the new digital marketplace. We're bringing you exclusive print editions of their most popular works with our new imprint, Trailblazer Books. And it all begins this month with Dark Sex, The Adventure Begins. When divorcee Sheila Bowser is forced to start a dog-walking business after her husband abandons her, she falls under the spell of a particularly pugnacious St. Bernard with a fetish for mature women and a penchant for standing upright. Romantic antics ensue in dog sex. The adventure begins, the first in a 76-part series. And next month, we bring Girl Scout Beetlejuice Jungle Party. When their chartered jet crashes in the Amazon rainforest, this nubile young Girl Scout troop finds themselves deliciously menaced by a handsome, insect-like creature who produces a very sweet nectar. Who will be the first to take a drink at the Girl Scout Beetlejuice Jungle Party? This special omnibus edition includes all 600 digital installments. And coming this fall, Dalai Lama Mama, sex monster of the Himalayas. When Chinese troops menace the Himalaya hideaway of one of the world's foremost spiritual leaders, the Dalai Lama is forced to stop them the only way he knows how. With sex, Namaste has never been so gay. Trailblazer Books from Oliver and Rowe, bringing you the best works from writers who blew past the gatekeepers so they could blow whoever and whatever they felt like. It all begins this month at one of the last remaining bookstores in your city. And you know, Amazon. You're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn, where the soup is hot, but the heads are hotter. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. And our guest this evening is Steve Barry. He is the New York Times and number one internationally best-selling author of nine Cotton Malone adventures, four standalone thrillers, and four short story originals. Busy man is Steve Barry. A 2010 NPR survey named The Templar Legacy, his novel, one of the top 100 thrillers ever written. Wow, that's quite an honor, Steve. Golly. It was pretty cool. <laughs> kind of caught me off guard on that one. Especially because you don't think of NPR when you think of thrillers, right? You think of NPR when you think of history books. Yeah, they, they decided that year they wanted to do, they were doing some stuff on mysteries and thrillers that particular summer. And so they ran this national survey and they they put, they put it all out there and did it. And, and my book found its way into the list of 100. So the people voted you one of the top actually, 100. Actually, the people, the people actually did. Yes, they did. Yeah, it was, the uh, public it was a, in uh, public radio. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, your book, which is out this week, I believe, is The Lincoln Myth. Okay, so um, we received a fascinating list of talking points about Abraham Lincoln in particular and your take on Abraham Lincoln. But I want to start by asking you this because so many of your books uh, – deal with history, what possesses you more, what obsesses you more as a, as a thriller writer? Is it history on the other side of the Atlantic or on this side here at home? I, I've been 
I started out across the Atlantic, but I've been gravitating lately more to this side of the Atlantic. I've, I've been dealing with stuff from the Constitution and some neat stuff. This book deals with something from the Constitution. But, but all the books, even if they do uh, deal with this side of the Atlantic, have a, uh, a European angle. to This book takes place in Salzburg. A lot of it happens over there. And your hero, Cotton Malone, runs a bookshop in Copenhagen. Is that correct? He does. Yeah, Why Copenhagen? Right. How did he wind up there? I was there when he was born. I was uh, in Highbrook Plots, a square there, sitting there eating dinner, and I uh, looked out at the square, and boom, there he just came in my head. I said, "He's going to be, he's going to live right here. He's going to have a bookshop," and he was. Uh, that was his birthplace. That's. I, I think that is, in some sense, every thriller reader's fantasy, if not every thriller writer's fantasy. Like I get to own a bookshop every day, and every now and then I get to go out and have an adventure and save the world. Am I right? Yeah, that was kind of the hook. You know, in, in thrillers, you look for something. you got to have something different a little bit, a little bit of rarity to it. You, you, you can't have the same thing. So Cotton's is, he's an old bookshop owner, and he wants to really kind of be left alone, but he gets, keeps getting drawn back in. But he's a former part of the U.S. Justice Department, right? Yeah, he worked for, uh, I created this thing called the Magellan Billet. It's just something I made up, and it, it kind of caught on, this elite unit. And he retired out early uh, a few years ago, and the Templar legacy is where he was born, and you learn all about that. And now he's had uh, nine adventures, and you know this is his tenth. Right, the Lincoln myth. What What is it that we don't understand? What is our greatest misconception about President Lincoln? Oh, God, there's so many of them. Uh, you can start with the first one. Uh, when you say Abraham Lincoln, the next thing out of your mouth is he freed the slaves. That's what everybody says. Abraham Lincoln didn't free a single slave, not one. Uh, he actually had a chance to free slaves uh, in the Emancipation Proclamation, but he specifically excluded the slaves that he could free. Uh, he never freed a single one at any time, but we, we, we associate that with him. There were actually a, slaves in the Union, right? There were slave-owning states yeah. in the Union. Correct. And he had the power to do something. Not really the power, but he could have spoken to that. He chose not to. He specifically excluded uh, states in the Union out of the Emancipation Proclamation. you got to remember also something. As horrible as it sounds, slavery was actually sanctioned by the United States Constitution. Mm -hmm. It was legal. It was perfectly legal to, to own slaves in America, and the President of the United States had no power to stop that. None whatsoever. That would it be would a congressional a thing, yes? No. No, it would take a constitutional amendment. Oh, to do that. okay, right. And it and, and the Thirteenth Amendment did that. That's why the Thirteenth Amendment had to be passed. He had no power to free any slave. It would be uh, equivalent today to let's say a new president gets elected and says Obamacare and Affordable Care Act is gone. You don't have to obey it anymore. He doesn't have the power to do that. Right. See? That's the that's because it's actually a law, and yeah, it's a, well, right, it's interesting right. too because I, I believe all three of us here grew up in in the South here in America, and, and huh? we, we're we're to ask Southerners where there's still a lot of ill will about the the war of Northern aggression, as some people still call it. Well, that's what we call it, right? Yeah. You're you're taught a counter narrative to what a lot of other students in other parts of the country are taught, which is that it was a very noble effort on the part of Abraham Lincoln to free the slaves. That's why he fought the Civil War. Had had. Nothing to do with it. In fact, in 1862, Abraham Lincoln gave an interview to Horace Greeley of the New York Tribune, and he told him very clearly, and I quoted in the novel exactly what he said. He said, if I cannot free a single slave but still save the Union, I will do that. Mm -hmm. Slavery had nothing to do with what, Ray, with what uh, Lincoln was doing. What it had to do with was Lincoln was the first 
president of the United States to expound the theory that the American states were indivisible, that the union is forever, it can never be broken. He's the first person to ever really say that and push that point. And that's what the Civil War was all about. And after writing this book and spending 18 months studying secession, I don't believe he was right. I actually think he was dead wrong. How so? How so? Dead wrong in what way? Secession to me is perfectly legal. Absolutely, perfectly legal. Um, Look at it this way. The founding fathers fought a revolution to to get rid of a king and to get rid of uh, totalitarianism. Right, right. Now, does it make any sense that they go to Philadelphia and in secret create a brand new one, a brand new government that they can never walk away from? Right. No, it doesn't make any sense that that happened at all. The Constitution is silent on the question of secession. It does not say that a state cannot leave. It doesn't mention that point. And three states, Virginia, New York, and Rhode Island, in their ratification of the Constitution, specifically reserved the right to walk away if they wanted to. And no one objected to that. Wow. No one. No one said you couldn't do that. The question of secession, the question of whether a state could leave the Union, everyone believed you could until Abraham Lincoln. Until Lincoln. It all changed after that. We just accept the fact now that the Union is forever and cannot be broken, but that is not a legal basis. That's just something that, that's come out of the Lincoln myth. And, and you yourself have a legal background. You, you haven't been president yet, but maybe. Um, what, what do you, I was a lawyer. You were a lawyer. What do you think secession would look like today? I mean, we see it bandied about in the news, particularly when there's a state that's, that leans decidedly in one political direction and, and a president that they don't agree with gets elected. We saw Texas threaten to secede from the union under Governor Rick Perry. What would that look like today from a legal perspective? Well, the book explores this as the possibility of what's happening. The novel explores it. What would happen is a state would take a vote, and if a majority of the people in the vote said, in the in the state said, "We want to walk away," the legislature would then issue a statement of secession. They would then suspend all commu- all contact with the federal government. They would cut everything off, and then, of course, with the battle would start. Now, I don't think that that the federal government is going to invade that state, but they would go to court. And it would go to court, and there would be a legal battle over whether or not a state could leave the union. There's only one opinion on this. Texas v. White from 1869, the Supreme Court ruled on this, and I quote it in the novel. It's the most horribly written opinion you've ever read in your life. It basically just says, you can't leave because you can't leave because you can't leave. It doesn't really say why. It just says you can't do it. But what else were these people going to say? I mean, Salmon Chase wrote the opinion. He served in Lincoln's cabinet. 600,000 people just died. He's not about to rule that secession was legal. So he ruled, of course, he just, he just forced a ruling. Right. It would be right. a fascinating question, and you'd have to deal with things about that state's right. share of the national debt. Exactly. You'd have to deal with that. But the, but the state also gets a credit for all of the national assets that it owned. So it, you'd go through this whole process. It's a fascinating question. It is. And we're going to be right back with you. We're going to talk about secession, the Lincoln myth, and all of your other Cotton Malone adventures in just a minute here on the Dinner Party Show. And who knows, maybe we'll make the case for California secession (laughs) while we're at it. 
tired of dining alone? Enjoy the dinner party show with friends. Like us on Facebook and become one of our party people. Then, during our live shows on Sundays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, you can join the conversation and post questions for Christopher, Eric, and their guests. During the week, drop in for tasty side dishes, show updates, and fun with the other party people. The Dinner Party Show. You are the life of our party. You're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Let's dish. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And we are talking with number one internationally best-selling and New York Times best-selling thriller author Steve Barry. His new book is The Lincoln Myth. It's out next week. And we are talking about whether or not secession would be legal for a state in the Union here in right. the United States. Let, let me ask a question. I, we're, we've been looking at what's been going on around, sort of around this issue in Ukraine recently, and one of the points that's been made is that they're, they're saying that everyone in Ukraine should be able to vote on whether or not Crimea secedes and not just Crimea. What about that sort of notion? If a state were to decide to secede, would the whole country get to vote on it or just the people in that state? I would think only the people in that state. Now, there are others who take that. That's what Lincoln said. Lincoln said you can't leave the Union unless everyone agrees you can. Right. That's what he basically said. That was his argument. Okay. He, he, said, he basically said that you can't leave unless we all say you can. Well, that just means it's forever unless everyone agrees it's not forever. So that's not really saying anything one way or the other. He wanted – he had this concept that America had to stay whole. Now, he had a tough job, and I'm, I'm going to give – you know, the truth about Lincoln actually is even more incredible than the myth because he had he, – he knew that France and England and all these countries, and they were sitting over there waiting for us to fall apart so they could pick the pieces up. He had a tough huh. job. Huh. He had a really tough job. So he, he latched on – to this concept of an indivisible union. Now, you realize in the Constitution, the word perpetual never appears. Hmm. It's nowhere in there. Not one word of the word perpetual anywhere in there does it say. So he latches on to this concept, and he, and he had to. Do you realize that after that he issued the Emancipation Proclamation and the northern soldiers heard about it and realized they may be fighting simply for slavery? There was mass desertions from the northern army. They, they, they weren't fighting for that issue. They didn't care about that issue. They cared about the issue of a union, of keeping the union together. And that's why he latched on to that. Right. But Lincoln was strong on that point. And we've accepted that as doctrine today, but it's not necessarily correct. So from this perspective, do we look at the eventual Emancipation Proclamation and the, the amendment that followed that did eventually free the slaves as just a technique for crippling the South's economy yeah, so that yeah. it could be incorporated into the, the Union? Well, the, the Emancipation Proclamation was a political gimmick, really. And even, even Lincoln said this to some degree. It was a political gimmick. He was trying to tell the slaves in the South, rise up. Right. I have freed you. Mm-hmm. Rise up and rebel. And it never happened. It just didn't come that way. Even Lincoln conceded that the Emancipation Proclamation had no legal effect whatsoever. He needed the 13th Amendment. But you've got to understand something about that amendment, by the way. And it was, it was ratified simply because the 11 states of the Confederacy had no choice but to ratify it. They weren't given an option. They said you had to ratify the amendment in order to to come back into the union, which is another argument, by the way. They had all these requirements, Congress, then, for them to get back in the union. Well, I thought they never left. 
Wow. If they if they never left, why do they have to get back into the union? Right. Uh, you know, when I was reading some now, of that's these a history, wrinkle I wasn't aware of. I didn't know they had to get back. I yeah, I thought they always the the, the point was they were no. always considered part of the union. That Texas v. White in eighteen sixty nine, four years later, the Supreme Court actually did rule that none of the states actually left the union. They were always in. But that's not the way Congress treated them after the Civil War. They treated them as if they had left and they had to do certain things in order to come back in. Right. Now, that's contradictory to me, to, to what they're saying. Okay, so uh, obvious question, and I, Eric is just bur- Eric is a history buff, too, and he's just bursting with questions here. But I have to ask you, <laughs> since we are a, a show based in Los Angeles, what is your opinion of, of the Steven Spielberg movie Lincoln, which was nominated for a Best Picture? Yeah, it, it, in a lot of ways, it's doing what I'm talking about. It was breaking the myth. At one point in there, you know, the, the, the Daniel Day Lewis's character, you know, he says that he says the Emancipation Proclamation doesn't do anything. I need this amendment. Mm-hmm. I need this amendment to, to free to get this done. That's kind of the now, point of Lincoln the movie. Hates, Lincoln hated slavery. I don't think there's any question about that. Right. I, uh, he certainly stopped the spread of slavery, which he did have the power to do. He could stop the the spread of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, and he certainly wanted to end it, but to say that Lincoln freed the slaves is false. Right. That is not true. Right. That is not true at all. So, in the end, how do you come down on Lincoln? Do you think he really was the great president, or...? Absolutely. Absolutely. He had a tough road. He had a... I mean, imagine coming into office. You've never served on a national stage before. There you are, and the country has already fallen apart. By the time he was inaugurated, you realize six states were gone. Hmm. Five more came after him, mm-hmm. and it's just fallen apart. I mean, he had a tough... It's pretty brutal. Yeah, and he did a, and he did what he had to do. What, what I explore in the novel is that what we know, what we think we know about Lincoln, is not necessarily true, and we, and we also deal in the book with very much so with the Mormon Church. Right, I was going to say book. that that whole side of the the I didn't I was completely unaware of any of that part of the uh, of he, the, the he, Lincoln legacy. He was apparently Lincoln was the first American president to have read the Book of Mormon, and you he talk was. about a secret pact that he made with the Mormons. And what that's, was that? That really I came happened. This is pretty cool. I came across this uh, uh, a couple of years ago, and this is how the novel was born. Uh, Lincoln checked the Book of Mormon out of the Library of Congress in July of 1862, and he kept it for like eight months. Uh, I actually held that book in my hand. I actually went to the Library wow. of Congress. You can, you can actually hold that book in your hand. Uh, I then learned that in, July, in January of, of 1863, he made a secret deal with, the, with uh, Brigham Young. That he needed something from the Mormons. They controlled the railroad and telegraph lines to California and the West. Huh. If, if those got cut, he would lose communication with the West, and the West would fall to the South. Now, you realize in January of 1863, the North is really getting their butt kicked in the Civil War. They're losing this war at this point. Right. This is before Gettysburg. So Lincoln's in a bad situation. He makes a deal with Brigham Young. He says, I will not enforce the Anti-Polygamy Act against you if you will not cut the lines of communication to the West. And Brigham Young agreed to that. Wow. And it altered the course of the Civil War. Because if the Mormons had entered the fight on the side of the South, which, by the way, the Mormons despised the federal government with a passion. All the federal government had ever done was torment them. They, they, They hated them. But Young made the deal. 
And to this day, Lincoln is revered by the Mormon Church. He's held in very high esteem by them, because Lincoln kept his end of the bargain, mm-hmm. and so did Brigham Young. Why do you think that he, that d- despite the history the, uh, between the Mormons and the federal government, why do you think Brigham Young made the decision? Because it was legitimizing? Because it recognized them? or well, he, just was, he was in the catbird seat. For the first time, you got to realize Mormons caught a lot of hell in the 19th century. It was legal to kill a Mormon in Missouri. That's how bad it was. They caught a lot of problems. Now, on the other side of it, they were not the easiest people to get along with either. (laughs) We've had some experience with that here in California. We've had some gay gay people here in California have had some run-ins with the Mormons. It's a little bit of little bit of both sides going on there. Right. But 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 the point is, is that they they had. They just had been abused. They, they started in New York. They went to Ohio. They went to Illinois. They went to Missouri. They got kicked out of all these places. They finally end up in Utah, out in the middle of nowhere. They built their utopia. They just want to be left alone, and guess what? Here right. they come. Right. Here they come. You know, James Buchanan sent an army there in 1857 to subdue the Mormons, but Brigham Young outsmarted him. And, and, and defeated that army. Wow. It was the Utah War. It's the, it's the only time I know in American history where we sent an army against our own people. Wow, I, did not, I didn't know that at all. Yeah. yeah, we actually sent an army out there, to, to, and he sailed them. He said, go out there and subdue these people. They're, they're just a pain. But Young was smart, and he outmaneuvered them. And then in 1860, there he sits. 1861, 1862, 1863, he's got it. He's in the catbird seat, and Brigham Young knows that, and he makes a deal, and it and it was a good deal for both sides. And it's a part of the the Lincoln myth, the the book that you've this this deal right forms oh, the hard, sort of fulcrum that you. Well, as long as we're talking about myths oh, around Lincoln, boy, here we go. I've got to ask, Joshua Speed, is that a myth? Joshua Speed, the uh, President Lincoln's boyfriend. Well, I don't know. I've seen this. It's one of those things where it's like, even my own reaction has been like, really? Well, there was a biography published, I think, many years ago, or or several years ago, not too long ago, that was very controversial, which asserted that Lincoln was gay and that he had a secret male lover for for many years. I, I, I came across little on that. I don't know the answer to that. There's a lot about Lincoln's private life that we don't know. But, you know, it, uh, it, it, it leads me to another question, too, and I think this stretches over everything that you do, Steve, which is how much of history is a secret? You know, we talk in terms of historical conspiracies and, and, and secret vaults and all those sort of things, but how much of history is, as they say, written by the victors and not very accurate? Just about all of it. To be right? So you're going to be in business for a long time. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. History is definitely written by the victors. There's no question well, about that. Well, Steve, let me yeah. ask you, as a, as a, as an author, one of the things that I have been struck by recently in popular fiction and movies and television has been the very liberal treatment of historical figures to serve a a storytelling end. Do you have? How do you like? One of the things I love about you, your you and your work is is the History Matters organization. You you really have great respect and veneration for the truth of history. And I think a lot of people producing books and movies are, are more interested in the story or the ticket sales than they are in the actual facts. I want to keep it as close as I can, but I have to trip it up a little bit because I'm writing a novel that's there to entertain you. Mm-hmm. And so I have to trip it up a little. And in this book, I just tripped it up a hair. Uh, I just added a couple of things to history that weren't there. Now, I always, in my books, there's a writer's note in the back that tells you all that. 
I always tell you what's true and what's false because I don't want to mislead you in any way. Good. So I try to keep it as accurate as I can. But, you know, I read three to 400 books on Lincoln for this thing. And I'll wow. tell you right now, there were three to 400 different Lincolns. Wow. There, there, right. There's very little consistency across it. And I do this with every novel. When you read three to 400 books on a particular subject matter, you learn very quickly how little we actually do know about these people right. because they all contradict one another. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you, after a while, you wonder, I, don't, I really don't know what, what this is. Well, you know, it's an interesting point. You know, we talked a lot about on this show recently about a, a TV series called Da Vinci's Demons, which really yeah, I watch it all the time. Well, we were we took exception to it because we felt it really ignored a significant body of evidence that Leonardo da Vinci was gay, and that it just sort of scrubbed that and turned him into a sort of womanizing Lothario. And and so I guess my question is: Is there a difference as writers, as fiction creators, if you will, between filling in what are widely acknowledged gaps in history, you know, where we just don't know something and speculating on what that might be, and just literally throwing a, a body of knowledge out the window because we, we say we, we know a TV series about a gay Leonardo da Vinci might not reach as many audience members. What, do you, what are your opinions about that as a writer? Well, what they're doing, see, it's like the da Vinci demon state. It's a fantasy it bears almost no resemblance to reality whatsoever, right. other than the fact that Da Vinci's in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I watch it. I watch it every week, and you know, it's it it it. it, it I watch it from the fantasy standpoint mm-hmm. of it. There's no there's no history there whatsoever, and and they don't deal with the, uh, with Da Vinci's you know how he really was in a lot of ways. No, they don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but that's the choice they made to put this fantasy series on. Mm-hmm. Now, if they were they were doing this a little more accurately, no, like the Tudors, the the great show right, right. series was on. I mean, it was relatively close. They they changed up a lot here and there for to, to combine things, but they kept it fairly accurate with regard to the way the characters really were. And there's a little more expected of you there when you right. do that. Right. So I, I think we can forgive the Da Vinci uh, demon peoples uh, because you know, as I said, it is fantasy. There I, and there is absolutely no resemblance. The trip to South America and such do depart no, and, substantially. And you from, recently, what's really weird about that is there are no mountains on the there are no mountains <laughs> like that on the eastern side of South America. <laughs> <laughs> what are they, Canadian mountains? Well, you remember how they're up in the mountains yeah, now, yeah. and they're up in the mountain, and it's Machu Picchu basically, right? Which is on the western side of South America, right? Right. And and so I, I you know he he lands on the on the on the land it's it's like I said it's fantasy yeah it's yeah, complete it's, fantasy it's like Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter right right exactly yeah which I wish I'd have thought of that though, <laughs> by the way I mean, wow <laughs> well not the movie the movie didn't do so hot but uh, the book did the book yeah did. but the guy the guy who wrote the book got to sell the movie right yeah. <laughs> that's very true that's always an advantage <laughs> so so I standard question but in terms of the history that you're obsessed with what's next where are your eyes going throughout the calendar of time. Uh, Cotton will be back next year. Uh, mm-hmm. He's coming back in, an, in a new adventure. It deals with something uh, really cool from the Constitution that uh, I think people are going to go like, uh, I really didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something I've came across. It's very interesting. It deals with one of the amendments to the Constitution and deals with FDR and some other folks and, and neat things. So uh, oh, he'll be dealing with that. 
That's yeah, wonderful. It's a, yeah, it's I think the Constitution story. is a hot topic these days. So but the more you can teach people about it, I think the better off people will be. There's a great, I think, temptation to imagine all sorts of things are in there. I, I, I try to find those weird things that people don't know about the Constitution. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You're also one of the founding members of International Thriller Writers. I am also one of the founding members. I think that's you how are. we first met years ago. We all had a dinner at the Algonquin Hotel in New York we after did. our lunch party. Uh, and I want to do, do a shout out to your wife, Liz, who has started a series that I'm going to be a part of called A Thousand and One Dark Nights. It's a series of that's paranormal right. and erotic romances that comes out once a month. And mine will be out in November. And uh, and uh, she is a lovely lady, and together you are a lovely couple. Yeah, and researching and running this historical organization, this historical yes. preservation organization, which I I really want to give you a shout out for. I think thank that's you. We, we do a lot. Very we do impressive. about six. We do about eight history matters events a year, and I'll be doing those starting uh, next week. And uh, you, the first one will be at the Poe House, Edgar Allan Poe House in Baltimore, next Thursday. And we'll toot your own horn. This is from your bio. Since 2009, this organization has raised over $750,000 via lectures, receptions, galas, luncheons, dinners, and popular writers' workshops for the cause. Of pres- historic preservation. That's well fantastic. done, sir. Well fantastic. done. Fantastic. Well, Steve, we know we know you've got to run, and we don't want to keep you, but we want to thank you for joining us this evening and and for being on the dinner party show. And we want to remind our listeners that uh, your latest book, as well as your most recent novels, your most recent Cotton Malone adventures, as they called, are available in our store at thedinnerpartyshow.com. And we wish you the best of luck as you promote this uh, fascinating new adventure. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been a lot of fun. For those of you who listen to The Dinner Party Show on a regular basis, you might recall the moment a few weeks ago when Christopher made it known on air that he would never read any of the Sleeping Beauty trilogy by A.N. Rokelar, despite the fact that this erotic, sadomasochistic take on the classic fairy tale was recently reissued with great success. The reason for Christopher's refusal? Well, A.N. Rokelar, it turns out, is just a pen name for Christopher's mother, Anne Rice. Since so many of you were taken aback by Christopher's outright refusal to read sexually explicit material written by his own mother, we here at The Dinner Party Show decided it was time for a little experiment. We expend so much energy challenging the beliefs of our listeners, we thought it was time to challenge Christopher's beliefs instead. So here it is, our first installment of a new special series, How Far Can Christopher Get Reading His Mother's Porn? Enjoy! Okay, I can do this. I can totally do this. Okay. Of course you can. Just fire up that Kindle and bring up the book. Let's and... not tell people I'm using a Kindle for this because we don't want bookstore owners getting bent out of shape about how all... All right, them. let's stop stalling instead. Fine, uh, fine, okay. fine, fine, fine. All right, all right, all right. <clears throat> Here goes. <clears throat> I've always loved the fairy tale Sleeping Beauty and found something erotic at its core. The prince awakens beauty not with a... Not the preface to the new edition. Start at the first chapter. Okay, fine. The prince had all his young life known the story of Sleeping Beauty, cursed to sleep for a hundred years with her parents, the king and queen, and all of the court after pricking her finger on a spindle. But he did not believe it until he was inside the castle. Even the bodies of those other princes caught in the thorns of the rose vines that covered the walls had not made him believe it. They had come believing it, true enough, but he must see for himself inside the castle. Careless with grief for the death of his father and too powerful under his mother's rule for his own good, he cut these awesome vines at their roots and immediately prevented them from ensnaring him. 
it was not his desire to die so much as to conquer. And picking his way through the bones of those who had failed to solve the mystery, he stepped alone into the great banquet hall. The sun was high in the sky and those vines had fallen away, so the light fell in dusty shafts from the lofty windows. And all along the banquet table, the prince saw the men and women of the old court sleeping under layers of dust, their ruddy and slack faces spun over with spider webs. This is actually pretty good. Okay, he gasped to see the servants dozing against the walls, their clothing rotted to tatters. But it was true, this old tale. And fearless as before, he went in search of the sleeping beauty who must be at the core of it. Uh-oh. In the topmost bedchamber of the house, he found her. He had stepped over sleeping chambermaids and valets, and breathing the dust and damp of the place, he finally stood in the door of her sanctuary. Her flaxen hair lay long and straight over the deep green velvet of her bed, and her dress in loose folds revealed the rounded breasts and limbs of a young woman. He opened the shuttered windows, the sunlight flooded down on her, and approaching her, he gave a soft gasp as he touched her cheek and her teeth through her parted lips and then her tender, rounded eyelids. Her face was perfect to him, and her embroidered gown had fallen deep into the crease between her legs so that he could see the shape of her sex beneath it. Uh, He drew out his sword, with which he had cut back all the vines outside, and gently slipping the blade between her breasts, let rip easily the old fabric. Her dress was laid open to the hem, and he folded it back and looked at her. Her nipple... No, no, no. No, that's it. Let's just stop right there. Let's stop right there. Really? Nipples? That's what's doing you in here? It's my mother, for Christ's sake. (laughs) She's read every one of your books. I lost count of the blowjobs in a density. All right, all right, all right. Fine, 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 fine. Okay. He cut the sleeves away, lifting her ever so gently to free the cloth, and the weight of her hair seemed to pull her head down over his arms, and her mouth opened just a little bit wider. He put his sword to one side, he removed his heavy armor, and then he lifted her again, his left arm under her shoulders, his right hand between her legs, his thumb on top of her pubis. No, 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 no. That's it. That's it. I'm not, I can't. I'm sorry. Oh, come I'm done on. At pu- I'm done at pubis. That's it. I'm sorry. Well, all right, we'll try for more next week. There's not going to be a next week. We hope you've enjoyed the first installment of our new series, How Far Can Christopher Get Reading His Mother's Porn? The answer for now, not very far, apparently. You're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn, where dessert is the most important meal of the day. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Well, that was a fascinating myth-busting interview. We should call it Mythbusters with Steve Barry. I, I, I appreciate his respect for um, history, but I also appreciate the, the revelation of looking into the characters when I was working on the book about uh, King David, which one day I'll finally... One day. ...bring out. Um, you know, there was very little known about King David. We we know almost nothing about him. It's what's in the Bible mm. and one stone that they found somewhere. It's really the only reference that we have that he was ever even existed. So for somebody who is relatively more contemporary, like 
Abraham Lincoln for there to be so much information, but also so much misinformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a, a wonderful sort of responsibility for historical novelists to reintroduce people to actual history. I, I have to say, I differ with Steve a little bit about the Da Vinci's I had demons. heard that. I had heard you had strong <laughs> feelings about Da Vinci's demons. Well, it's really more a cultural thing with the Da Vinci's demons for me because it's about eliminating a cultural participation. It's 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 taking the gay out of that story. And so mm-hmm. we're saying that this Taking the gay figure. out of the story, but cashing in on the name value. Right. That's the problem. I think if you want a vehicle for fantasy, as we were talking about, you don't need to to uh, pervert the body of knowledge about a historical figure like da Vinci to, to make it. But, you know, people have different attitudes. I remember people being bent out of shape about the help in a similar way because it was... It was an ahistorical depiction of a of a period in history. Absolutely, I, I thought you know? it was a cute book, but it really was very little yeah. about the actual time period. It was a very amusing movie and an adorable book, but yeah, it was a very inaccurate, yes, sort of view. And and in a way, I think it was a little. In the same sort of culturally dismissive sort of way, right? Like black women needed that. A white Cute girl white to teach girl them to, how to can make a yeah. journal, and then you had no problems, girlfriend. Yeah, no. I the Mad TV did a wonderful skit many years ago called I think White Lady or Nice White Lady, which was a satire of the teacher <laughs> movies like Dangerous Minds and oh my God, and the Hillary yes. Swank one that came later, where <sighs> it was the, the 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 inner city black student saying, "What I need is a nice white lady." You know, like it—it it is. It is a total sort of self-serving fantasy right. on the Come part of the people us. who write it. But you know, we are living in an era in which one of the most popular uh, shows on the History Channel is *Ancient Aliens*, which posits that any gap in history can be explained as alien intervention or Christianity. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Welcome to the dinner party show. I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, straight man. <laughs> Well, I mean, it really is sort of the same kind of like, well, uh, because uh, God. Yeah, like, right. Well, okay, I guess that could partly be the kind. I, I always find all of those things reductive. Like, if there is God, and I actually think there is, wouldn't he be more impressive if he could invent really amazing things like evolution or the Big Bang or whatever I, it is? I, I, yeah, yeah. And I think then, that's part of what's fueling this ancient aliens craze. I think it is attracting the devotion of people who literally want an alternative cosmology to Christian religion. They really want to believe that we are descended from the Anunnaki, a giant race of alien beings who, <laughs> who founded the Mesopotamian culture. And, and they want to, you know, because it is, it is a godlike species that apparently could be held responsible for all this great technology, which we're only discovering gradually. I know a lot about this, don't I? I've watched one too many episodes of this show. But I think it's reductive as well. I think it takes away from the majesty of what actually happened, which is more impressive. Wouldn't the Anunnaki be more amazing if they deposited a tiny little... Anunnaki. Okay, whatever. (laughs) If they dropped off a single-celled animal into the ocean and and allowed it to... You know, ex- yes. expand into the whole. That's way more impressive to me than coming in and, you know, hurting I, people like I, cattle. I, I'm playing Anunnaki advocate, I if know. you will. I, I don't actually I believe anything. Anunnaki. The episode of. Where did they a- come from, the Anunnaki? Ancient aliens. We're not quite sure. Up there somewhere. <laughs> I think they came here for our gold and they invented us as a slave race. That oh was my it. God, they I came just... here for our gold. That was it. 
Um, the, because uh, that's why you would travel across the universe if you were so amazing that you could literally fly faster than the speed of yeah. sound and travel across the universe. What you'd be looking for is gold. What we need is some gold. Listen, the episode where I finally bailed on Ancient Aliens was when they said, well, artists throughout history, and there's this Greek guy with this big mop of hair. He's really the face or the hair, if you will, of the show. And he runs like Legendary Times magazine or something. And he was saying, artists like Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci claim that their ideas came from out in space. (laughs) So that means aliens told them what to do. Like, what, dude? But it is really no more weird than saying we nailed this guy to a cross and he came back from the dead and pushed the wall of his tomb aside and also said, be nice strange. to people. So, also a very strange yeah, story. Anyway, it's a weird world we live in. Uh, so I hear you, Eric Shawquin, have been on Vatican Watch this week. Vatican yes, Watch? Yes, Vatican <laughs> I, Watch. I, you know, honestly, I... I don't know that I would go so far as to say that I'm on Vatican Watch. It it seems like a lovely place. It's a hell of a cathedral. But now, although there has been interesting news from there mm. this week, apparently they've determined, and who knew that they could do this, so heads up to everyone out there, that the somebody is using the Vatican's IP address to look at something called shh.com, which is a, a women's erotica site. Oh, so I now with women on it or for women? I guess it's for women. Well, so I don't know what would be on it, I, but I think it's more candles and feathers and I see um, and chocolates and whatever. To- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as opposed to the more sort of masculine. Uh, athletic event sort of Right. Well, I, I have to say this is big news that someone who works at the Vatican is interested in women. Well, maybe you'll have find a new fan base there as I you will. begin to develop your Now you've just gotten back from your your uh, Yes, the Romantic Times Book Lovers Convention. I like calling it Romantic Times because people think of medieval times and I guess they imagine me dressed up like Fabio entertaining diners at a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's it, it's great, and and I I was there to promote uh, a thousand and one dark nights, as we said earlier in the show. Steve Barry's wife Liz Barry is one of the founders of Evil Eye Concepts, and this is too much information about the business side of it. But it is a series of erotic romance novellas that are published once a month. And they are basically kind of a modern take on Scheherazade, right? Scheherazade told stories to delay her own execution to to, to charm the king. Is somebody threatening you, Christopher? And, and I'm being threatened, and this is what I have to do. I, I They have my cats, and they said, you will write an erotic romance novella that will be published in November. It'll be called The Flame, which Eric has made a great deal of fun of previously on this show. What did you say? A gay superhero character? Hey, girl. <laughs> <laughs> the, I'm the flame. I'm the flame. Okay, it's not about that. It is about well, a that's candle. It's about a candle that makes your erotic dreams come true. It's a much more logical concept. I would. Than that. I would actually buy one of those. Yes. That sounds like yeah. Like, yeah. Will, they, will those be available? Uh, we're going to do a promotion of some sort. I don't <laughs> know if the. It's a supernatural story, so I don't know if we can quite get the candle to perform the way it does in the Maybe novella. We can, but we'll have to get Timothy J started on those. We I'll, will. Yeah. I'll mention that if anybody can make a candle that would make your erotic dreams come true be Timothy J. Absolutely. Well, Timothy we're almost out of time. I want to congratulate Buffy Peterson, right? Our big yes. winner for the Quattro de Mayo. The Naked Facts of Life. Congratulations, Congratulations. Buffy. And uh, 
Next week we are the gayest our show gayest ever show ever. We did that in round. Our gayest show ever we are putting together and that's a tall order for this show. This show is pretty gay. Steve Barry's not gay, but we, but we are. We're very gay. Anyway, we're putting together our gayest <laughs> hi, it's like a highlight reel of our gayest gay 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 gayness. Yeah, it's partly in honor of the start of uh Gay Pride Month, which is doesn't actually start next weekend, but we, we don't want to wait around till the last minute. <laughs> there was and a... Christopher has a book to edit. So <laughs> I have a fucking book to edit. So we're doing a greatest hit show. Uh, we're calling it the gayest show ever. So tune in for that. Look for Steve Barry's new book, The uh, the Lincoln Myth, which is out this week. Mm-hmm. And links are available in the store on our site. And, you know, call in and confess something on the Dinner party show party I, line. Do something gay. Pez TDPS. Even if you're not, even if you're not gay, just call the party line and do something gay, and maybe we'll play it on a show. Who knows? Just give us stuff to you work. You never with. can tell. But anyway, we want to thank you for tuning in. Absolutely. I'm Christopher Rice, and I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and you've been listening to the Dinner Party Show. Thanks. I've been to a marvelous party.